Welcome to the Martinskirk Podcast, a publication of sermons and lessons from Trinity Reformed Church of Martinsburg. Trinity Reformed exists to declare the victory of Jesus Christ through worship and practice to the ends of the earth. To learn more about our congregation, visit martinskirk.com. Now, a friend of mine uh, wrote a, a book recently on preaching, and one of the things he said in there I thought was really interesting. He penned these words, quote, A sermon isn't truly a sermon if it does not point, like the outstretched finger of St. John the Baptist, to the God who is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. End quote. So a sermon is not truly a sermon if it does not point to our Lord Jesus. And I want you to keep this in the back of your mind this morning as we break forth the, I guess, the fourth wall, the fourth wall of preaching here and speak of the liturgical act of what's called homiletics, which is sermon presenting. Preaching a sermon. From Adam's words to his beloved wife and and from Moses' thundering at the base of Mount Sinai to Jonah's preaching to Nineveh all the way to Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. Preaching has been a tradition since the creation of man. Men preach. Preaching is the art of speaking about God's word and speaking for God to his people. And we often think of a sermon as a a passive art, a passive part of the worship service to God. We're not to to feel or to receive, we're not to participate in this portion of the service. You sit there and you just let the pastor talk, right? You just absorb and absorb. But this is an altogether damaging view of the purpose of preaching, especially preaching in God's Word. The sermon is to be living and active. It is to invite the listener into something new. It is to present you with a task. To truly listen to a sermon, to grab hold of the truths of God's word with faith, means to actively search for ways to apply that word to your own life and the lives of those around you, and to do so with joy and with expectation. That's what it means to participate in the the preaching life of the church. And our Lord Jesus was a master, obviously, of the art of preaching. He had a lot of practice, especially leading up to his ministry. His sermons are as old as time. Preaching the light, stars, and waters, and earth into existence. When he preaches, even the storm-tossed waves fall silent. After the preaching of Christ, bellies are filled with fish and bread. Minds are astonished. Bodies healed, the possessed are freed, and hearts are turned to either stone or flesh. And this is because Jesus is the very Word of God. The same speech whose words cause grass to grow, mountains to tremble, and hearts to beat. This speech became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is a living sermon, the sermon of God, a sermon that reconciles that heals and redeems all those who hear him and believe him. He is the sermon that all other sermons must preach, the very source of life and health. There is no power in a preacher's words apart from the word of God. It is the duty of the hearer to grab hold of that word in humble faith, to take it, to believe it, and to obey it. Now, the word of God has been central to the people of God since the Lord told Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And there have been many times 
in the history of the church and the world when the word was all that the people of God had. It is true that the temple of God was the source of life for Israel in the Old Covenant. They had one mountain, they had one temple, one ark with God's word in it. One house in which God would dwell among his people in Jerusalem. And there they made sacrifices to God. They sang the Psalms. They prayed and ate and drank in God's presence. But due to their rebellion, oftentimes, that mountain was not always accessible. It was not always available. During the Babylonian exile, for example, that mountain was, uh, or the people on that mountain, were scattered all across the empire. And the temple of Jerusalem was sacked. It was made desolate. So where was, where was God's word with Israel then? Where was God's presence with them then? And after Israel's exile in Babylon, they developed what they called the synagogue. This isn't anywhere in the scriptures, right? We have historical evidence for this. This is usually where we get it from Ezra and Nehemiah. We get this idea of the synagogue from, which synagogue literally means bringing together. It means assembly or gathering. And what they did during this Babylonian exile and afterward was they constructed these synagogues in a similar way to the temple. Right? They had a courtyard where, uh, where people would meet and gather. The congregation would sit, usually inside, but it was a, a court of sorts in which the people gathered. They had a pulpit or a raised platform where, or a holy place in which the elders or teachers or, or honored guests would sit and would read the scriptures and, and preach. And they had a box behind this pulpit that was holy to them, which contained the scrolls of the law and the prophets. So whenever they read from the prophets, they would, they would take that scroll out of the box, they would read it, and they'd put it back up, roll it back up, and put it in that box. So they had a sort of three-layer system just like the temple. They would catechize and teach and sing and pray and read from the scrolls and even debate in these gathered, gathering places. And archaeologists have even discovered ruins of a lot of these early synagogues to have these pots of manna and uh, grapevines engraved on the entrance of these uh, places of prayer. It was a reminder for them that wherever Israel goes, God feeds his people with his word. Now, these synagogues weren't replacements to the temple, but a supplement to it. They would meet weekly to hear God's word, to, to be taught its laws, and to hear the preaching of the leaders of Israel. They couldn't sacrifice in these synagogues, but they could devote themselves to the word of God and prayer. And that's what they did. They did it weekly. And they kept this tradition. It stuck with them. So when Jesus comes along, we see that he's no exception to this tradition of the synagogue. In Luke chapter 4, after his baptism, and after his time in the wilderness, after he begins his ministry, Jesus returns to Galilee, and he starts a teaching tour. He starts to go around to all the, the surrounding region of Galilee, traveling to synagogue after synagogue, explaining the scriptures and participating in their services. Now, in the first century, any male could actually participate in the synagogue teaching and preaching. You didn't have to be, it was a lay-run institution. You didn't have to be some sort of special person or ordained person to participate in the synagogue life. So Jesus 
was a full participant of this synagogue life. He, he did this often. They were accustomed to his teachings, if you remember, as a young boy in Luke, uh, that he's recorded as teaching uh, the scriptures to the scribes and Pharisees. He was, he was accustomed to doing this. And Luke describes Jesus standing up to read in the synagogue, to read from the scriptures, as his custom. He never missed a Sabbath day. He was always there, right? Everyone knew where to find Jesus on the Sabbath. He was at the synagogue. He was learning the law and the prophets, learning about himself. So Jesus stood to read from the prophet Isaiah. Now, the elder may have chosen the particular reading for that, for that Sabbath. They may have had some sort of lectionary during those times. I imagine that they would have. Uh, but sometimes, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they were more spontaneous. Maybe Jesus chose this particular passage for himself. Right? It mentions that he found where he was looking, right, in the scrolls. So he may have had a particular passage in mind. I don't doubt that. But they always stood to read from the Word of God. If you think about it, heralds, which is what a, uh, a, a prophet is, heralds stand to announce the word of a king. And the passage that he read uh, from Isaiah chapter 61 is really fascinating for this particular situation as well. He read from Isaiah 61, which reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. It's Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. Now, before we get into what all of that means, it's important to understand the time frame and the setting of this particular event. Okay? Jesus had just kick-started his ministry. He had just been baptized and anointed by his Father to embark on his journey to the cross, to fulfill his ministry on earth. He had just been fasting in the wilderness and had been tempted by the devil. He was told that he had to bow down before, before Satan to inherit the kingdoms of the earth. And now, strengthened by that same spirit, having gone through that temptation and come out blameless, strengthened by that spirit, he comes back to his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee to seemingly get back to normal life, right? People would have known he'd been away for a bit. Now he's back in town and he's back in the synagogue again. He never misses a Sabbath. But this time it's different. This time it's different. He stood up before. He's, 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 I'm sure he's read from the scriptures before in the synagogue. I'm sure he's even preached in the synagogue before, but this time is different. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah. He hands the scroll back to the elder or leader. And then he sits to preach a sermon. Now again, this is probably not his first sermon as lay Jews could teach in the synagogues. But now he speaks with the authority of the Spirit. He speaks as one who has been anointed by God. Being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The prophet that he is reading at that moment. He sits and reveals himself to those who have known him his whole life as one anointed by the Spirit of God. He sits in authority as a prince, assumed to be king over heaven and all earth, having resisted the temptation of, of Satan in the, in the wilderness to bow before him, to
to receive that kingdom, he now sits prepared to take it from him. And he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now again, these same people have heard many things about Jesus since his baptism. News travels fast, even in the ancient world. They had heard of his baptism by John, how the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove. They had always marveled at his teachings in the synagogue and teachings around the temple, even as a young boy. But there's something different about this message in Nazareth. Something new. His anointing by God was public for all to see, but there are at least three truths that he presents now that are being revealed to this particular people in Nazareth right now as he preaches. He has come and has been anointed by God to do three things. One, to reconcile his people back to God. To reconcile his people back to God. Two, to heal his people from the effects of sin and from the hold of Satan. And three, to redeem his people from slavery to sin and Satan. Now Jesus preaches the good news, good news to the poor. This is what he says. He preaches good news to the poor, to those who lack. The good news is that the kingdom of heaven has come. That their inheritance, their inheritance awaits them in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The poor have hope. They have hope that their poverty has come to an end because they have in Christ all the spiritual gifts in the heavenly places. They have in Christ the whole earth and all that is in it. They have in Christ no lack, no want. He cares for his children. Jesus has said, life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor bar, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? So Jesus preaches good news to the poor. He reconciles us to God to be counted as children of God, and if children, then heirs, and if heirs of God, heirs with Christ. Heirs to an inheritance, to riches beyond our understanding. He also heals the brokenhearted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Or in Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. His preaching has an effect. It doesn't leave you where you are. He comforts you with his promises. His ministry extends beyond just bodily need. But it goes even to the soul of man, to the heart. Though we are sinned against, he offers rest. Though we sin against others and fracture our relationships with one another, he offers true forgiveness and restoration. Though we feel the sting of death and the loss of those we love, he comforts us with with his promise that we will follow him in resurrection. And along these these same lines, he recovers sight to the blind. He is the light of the world and in him there is no darkness. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and have often returned to that darkness in times of sin or despair. But he is the light that leads us to the glorious life of Christ. So Jesus tells us, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
So in this way, he heals his people from the effects of sin and the hold of the devil. But he also redeems us. He liberates us. He liberates his people from the grip of sin and death. From slavery to sin. He doesn't just promise hope or healing you temporarily. He delivers you. He redeems you from your debts and slavery to sin. We're made free in Christ. Isaiah says that the Lord first proclaimed liberty to captives. And through prophets like Isaiah, he proclaims that liberty even ahead of time. He says it's already yours. It's already yours. It is fulfilled in your hearing. Acts chapter 10 verse 43 says to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Now to be remitted of sins is to be freed from the debt of sin, which is judgment, it's death. But he doesn't just preach this redemption, he accomplishes it. He has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now this is a direct reference to Leviticus chapter 25. Israel not only had weekly Sabbaths on the, on the seventh day of the, of the week, but they also were required to observe national Sabbaths every seventh year. Right? And this Sabbath was to give rest to the land. They weren't to, uh, to sow or reap from the land. They were let to, to let the harvest grow wild in Israel. It was, to, it was supposed to become a garden in which people could rest and walk and pick and eat, just like the Garden of Eden. They weren't allowed to sow in the fields or gather any fruit. But there was also a Sabbath every 49 years. Sabbath upon Sabbath upon Sabbath. Seven Sabbath years upon seven Sabbath years. And on this Sabbath, Israel would sound the trumpet of Jubilee in the seventh month of this 49th year. And all land debts would be canceled. And each Israelite under servitude for their debts would be allowed to return to their own land and possessions free from those debts. So Jesus here is sounding a trumpet. He's proclaiming this acceptable year of the Lord. He's canceling the record of debt against us, nailing it to His cross. He's making man new in Himself, born again to a new possession, a new kingdom in Christ. Our debt is being canceled in Him. Now, of course, to this crowd in Nazareth synagogue, these Great works of Christ had not yet happened yet. So it must have been astounding to hear that this scripture is fulfilled today. He says this scripture is fulfilled today. Not in the future, not in the past. Today. Jesus spoke this way because this is how God speaks. His promises are sure. They're guaranteed. He never fails. When he promises something, it is like it has already happened. Though Jesus is beginning his ministry with this with sermon, he can preach as if it is already accomplished because his promises are true. Even as he sat there, those who would believe and follow him would have reconciliation with God. They would have healing and true liberty guaranteed to them. But it's also interesting how Jesus phrases this promise. Not just, to, not just the today part. He says that this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In your hearing this, the scripture is fulfilled. It is not just the preaching of Christ that affects our hearings, 
or our hearts and our minds, but our hearing, meaning our reception of that preaching, affects our hearts and minds. To hear God, again, is not a passive thing. God told Israel through Moses that they had not heard his voice when they turned from his ways. Jesus said that his sheep know his voice. And you only know that a sheep knows your voice if they turn to you and follow you. If they hear you and obey your commands. That's how you know that a sheep knows your voice. That's how you know that the sheep has heard your voice. Now to be sure, Christ's preaching is always effective. It always accomplishes something. It either condemns the one who hears or it quickens them. But the hearing that Jesus is talking about is the reception of his words in faith, in trust. To receive his words, to hear them, is to hold fast to his words. And he says when they do that, this scripture is fulfilled. But the promise that that scripture would be fulfilled today is not just for those people in the synagogue in the first century. That promise that that scripture is fulfilled in our hearing, even today, is made to us. Even now, the scripture is fulfilled in our hearing. The church continues this tradition of hearing the word of God. We hear the words of Christ in the readings of the scriptures, the singing of psalms, the preaching of the church, following the example of our Lord. And not only do we hear even today, but we proclaim this same message to the world so that they too would fulfill the scripture in their hearing. We become prophets with God. The church preaches the good news to the poor and to the meek. The church, by the, by the power of the Spirit, heals the brokenhearted, proclaims liberty to the captives, gives sight to the blind, and declares the acceptable year of the Lord to the entire world. This is our task. This is our commission to proclaim the words of Christ, to teach them that they may obey and have faith. The life of the church should be shaped by the sermon that is the life of Christ Jesus. And if the church does not hear his words, if the church does not walk in his ways, will the world hear Christ? So the church's life should be a sermon to the world. An outstretched finger pointing to God who is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. But this starts, first and foremost, with each and every one of us, and the act of listening and hearing of this word. How will we respond? How will we hold the words of Christ near? So you need to ask yourself, have I grown apathetic to the word of God? Have I lacked discipline in hearing this word? Has the call to hear Jesus become too burdensome for me lately? Has it become a burden that I feel like I can't bear? We have to ask those questions. And it doesn't take too long for these Jews in Nazareth who marveled at the words of Christ to quickly reject him. It's in the next verses. They quickly reject him. It doesn't take long for us to stop our ears to the voice of Christ either. We marvel at the mercies of God when we think that they don't require anything of us in return. We love the words of Christ when we think it means that we don't have to change our own behaviors or habits. We want the good news. We want the comfort and healing. We want the liberty from sin. We want the wisdom and light of Christ. 
We want to be delivered from our oppressors. We want all the mercies offered to us in Christ, and yet we often don't want to follow him to those mercies. Because where do those mercies lead? They lead to the cross. We all know that if we follow him, it means we have to die. All of those promises are sure and trustworthy, provided that we hear the voice of Christ and follow him in faith. He has set his spirit upon you. He has granted you faith. He has anointed you in holy baptism. He has set you in his kingdom. And there is nothing you can, you can do or what, nothing you have done to have earned that status. And yet he has anointed you to a new life, a new life to live. He has not called you to squander your inheritance, but to improve upon it. I'm baptized and I believe so I'm good is a dangerous way to live. It's a dangerous way to live. It is not the way of Christ. So does your life preach this same sermon? Church, your life will never preach Christ if, it is not a, if, it, if your life is not accustomed to Christ's word. When you hear the word of God read and sung and prayed and preached on Sunday, do you grab hold of it with faith? Do you take it with you? Do you take it with you? Do you search for ways to apply it to your own lives? Is it in your thoughts when you wake up on Monday morning? When you speak to your wife during the week? When you wrestle with your kids? When you joke and laugh? Children, when you listen to your parents, is the word of God on your minds? Is the word of God with you? Or have you grown cold to his voice? Have you shut down? You can think about it this way. If your house lacks forgiveness and reconciliation, then be reconciled to God daily by confessing your sins in prayer. If you're apathetic to the calling of Christ, repent of your apathy. Forgive the debts of your friends and family. Liberate them from your bitterness and your resentment toward them. Change your attitude. Change your attitude in your home by being a source of of healing to those burdened by the struggles of everyday life. Stop complaining and grumbling, right? Be a source of light to those trapped in darkness and despair. Christ says, begin today. Today, these words can be fulfilled in your hearing. Hear the scriptures and let it become that sermon to others. Turn to Christ as your source of true mercy, healing, and redemption. Christ has come to you. He's come to you poor in spirit. He's come to you brokenhearted. He's come to you blind and captive. So listen to his voice. And may your life preach Christ Jesus our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.